Kia ora katoa. Welcome to The Hoon, where co-host Peter Bale and I go around the week's news in geopolitics and Aotearoa's political economy with a whole bunch of experts, academics and politicians, all to understand our worlds better and have some fun. And welcome to The Hoon. It is Friday the 5th of May. I'm Bernard Hickey with co-host Peter Bale in Spain. How are you? I'm very good, thank you, Bernard. I just suddenly realised that you certainly turn, you, you know, you suddenly turn into a sort of disc jockey when you go into this kind of 5, 4, 3, <laughs> 2, 1 mode. You, you've become Casey Kasem. Casey Kasem. Oh, yes, we need a top 100 of geopolitics um global economy 40 yeah 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 no i've i've developed my radio voice with half a glass of gin and tonic after a long week of work so i'm really looking forward to this well i have the the usual usual coffee in but it's in spain and i've just i've just made it but and and as i say have said to you before there are people here who will have a little a little brandy at um with their coffees in the, in the in the morning, but I'm not one of them. But once I've started smoking, you know, twenty or thirty Spanish cigarettes a day, and I have a brandy to start my day, then we'll we'll be off. You'll have the Casey Kasem's as well. That's right. I'll be going. I'll be talking like this. <laughs> and you managed to avoid all the mayhem in London, where there's going to be a coronation over the weekend. Apparently, is there? Yeah, and our Prime Minister Chris Hipkins is there. Yes, I saw he met William the other day. And he got a sausage roll or two, Excellent. which he consumed. Oh, that was very God. kind of the of the the new king. I am a bit worried that Chris Hipkins' whole thing is being a sort of pie eating, wrap around sunglasses wearing person from um, from the hut, and that he's going to sort of take that persona wherever he goes. Yeah, well, apparently he had to buy a new suit for the coronation, so he went to Barker's. Of course, he did. Helen Steins would be more his speed, wouldn't it? I think so. But he's he's very confident in his own skin and uh, having a good time over there, apart, of course, from, from the drama of turning his phone on when he landed in London and it blowing up with, Mecca fighter, he's just jumped to the mm. to, to Pati Māori, which I'm um, shocked Do we everyone. literally call that walker jumping? Is that what walker jumping? Because when I first came back, there was this strange much. Uh, walker jumping legislation or walker jumping rules. What t- Tell us about that. Then. Yeah, uh, this was designed by... Winston Peters and was one of the conditions of getting into government in 2017. This was designed to stop the rebels mm-hmm. uh, jumping from one party to another, uh, these are list MPs, during the term of government. Because this is what happened to Winston Peters in the late 1990s. And um, when you've got a bunch of you know wild cards in your party who you probably don't even know yourself, you want to try and stop them from disintegrating halfway through the term. And this meant that if you did jump from one party to the next, you were kicked out of parliament, according to the Walker jumping rules. And what has shocked everyone is that uh, Mika Faiteri has clearly jumped from the Labour Party mm-hmm. and says she's going to stand for Te Pāti Māori in Ikaroa Rafiti in the election. But uh, the way it's being done with the Speaker means that she doesn't have to resign as an MP. And it's all very curious and vague, and everyone's now demanding that the letters be discussed in public, and it's all very, frankly, distracting and, and painful. Well, I think they should, though, shouldn't they? But because one of, one of the interesting things about this, presumably, is, and I have been tracking it, of course, is that it kind of moves some of the power from the Labour Maori caucus into the Maori part, to Party Maori. And it definitely will strengthen their yeah. strengthen their their role as a kingmaker after the election. Given that they, in the latest poll, the Roy Morgan poll at least, that's the most recent one we've seen, mm-hmm. they had four and a half percent. And if they get three seats, which now looks quite likely, um, we're talking five or six MPs, and that's more than enough to hold the balance of power. Yeah. And if Raf Manji manages to cook up a deal for Island, that could uh, create quite a grouping of power brokers mm. in the middle to decide who gets into power. Yeah, it's a really interesting step because all of those people who argue that the, that the existing Maori caucus is too strong or too influential over the rest of Labour are going to get a hell of a shock when they realise that, that that same power is going to be exercised actually by Te Pāti Māori, aren't they? 
Yeah, I think that's one of the reasons why the Prime Minister, you know, expressed disappointment but didn't really unload. Exactly. <laughs> because exactly. he may have to talk with Mika Whaiteri in about five months' time and ask her nicely if he can stay in government. Mm, mm. So that um, it, that was an excitement um, and a, a scoop from Tao Māori News on uh, Wednesday night, which uh, which was interesting. And um, it's about that time, I think, to welcome in Julianne Genta. Speaking of power brokers. Yes. <laughs> Lo- lovely to see you, Julianne, again on The Hoon, a-, a regular and welcome guest. Are you calling us from Wellington? Is that right? I just got back to Wellington and I'm here at my kitchen table. So hopefully the lighting is not ideal. Excellent. Do you have a gin and tonic? <laughs> I have one of those um, brain performance drinks, supposedly. Of course you do. Um, <laughs> if your brain was any stronger, though, Julia, we'd be in real trouble. You know, you'd be prime minister already. And and, and just dribble a bit of gin in. That, that will help, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I've just got a sick toddler on the couch, just warning you in case uh. any. No, I mean this. This will turn into a viral hit. Yeah, when the, your toddler crawls all over your back and intervenes in the hoon, that mm, would be that exactly. would be good. Uh, it's lovely to see you, and in particular, a big week in transport news as the transport spokesperson for the Green Party, and also as one of the uh, the founders and driving forces of the clean car discount scheme. That was the big news this week. The government decided to change it. What did you make of the changes, which in effect make it more expensive to buy a Ford Ranger and a Toyota Hilux, but also means the uh, uh, rebates you get for a Tesla or for a Leaf are um, uh, smaller, and uh, some of the hybrids, uh, both new and used, don't get uh, rebates anymore. This was because it was too successful, apparently. So what, what, what did you think of the changes? I remember when we first talked about this policy, we were talking with the um, advisors at the Ministry of Transport and uh, people were saying, oh, what happens if it's oh, you know too successful and it's not raising enough revenue to cover its cost? And I said, well, that's a really good problem to have because that means that we're doing better on emissions reduction than what you're forecasting. And the design of the system is such that you should be able to make it cover its costs over time by adjusting the prices on the high polluting vehicles. And I think that's where we haven't seen enough action. And that's why there is a gap. It's because they started giving out the rebates nine months before they brought in the fees. So you had people panic buying use um, for about nine months. And of course, a steep drop off in the purchase of high polluting vehicles right after the program came in. So I think I think it's fair enough to put up the fees. The fees are very low in New Zealand compared to other countries with fee baits, like extremely mm. low. In France, the highest leading vehicles pay 30,000 euro for a fee, which is about $60,000. I suppose, Peter, you haven't seen too many double cab utes in Spain. I haven't seen too many double cab utes in Spain, but um, I, I am driving a diesel Volkswagen, which reminded me that diesel is still very popular in Southern Europe. But as you know, I was in Oslo last week where 79% of new cars registered last year were electric, you know, and, and Oz, you know, Norway has really gone to town on this. I mean, of course, yes, as people said last week, Norway has a lot of money uh, from from oil, oddly, uh, and it also has a somewhat higher tax regime than, than New Zealand does, but they're really serious about it. And I think I think the point here, though, to some extent, um, Julian Bernard, is, is that New Zealand isn't actually currently serious about any of these policies. Well, Norway does, and I would say it's you know it's not like they're using oil money to fund the EV subsidies in Norway. They have high taxes on all vehicles, and they simply remove the taxes on EVs to accelerate uptake, along with other complementary policies. And we do need some more complementary policies to support more EVs here in New Zealand because we don't have the charging infrastructure sorted and the lines companies, the distribution networks aren't set up. Yeah. Don't you detect though uh, quite a lot of backsliding? By the government, particularly particularly since Chris Hipkins came to power, which I understand politically, but there's a tremendous amount of backsliding going on on these relatively weak existing commitments because of po- potential political unpopularity. Right? I it's so interesting because there was polling released a couple of weeks ago that showed that the clean car discount, including the fee component, was popular with voters, including a majority of people who identify themselves as national Mm. party voters. So I thought that was really interesting. And it 
it is probably for that reason they haven't completely jettisoned the policy, but they could lean in a bit more. You know, would we have done the exact same changes to the clean car discount? I I have to look at, you know, more detail on the advice they got. They did um, ask us what we thought, and I think they did make some changes based on what we said. But, you know, we just have to keep going even further and faster mm. in this direction. Mm. And, of course, that's why I would argue we need a much stronger Green Party in the next government so that they can show some better leadership on these issues and implement successful, uh, effective policies. So electric cars are one part of the story, but the other one is public transport. And this week we've seen rail mageddons. When you think about this um, story in tabloid terms, which sometimes you have to, rail mageddons in Wellington and Auckland, uh, starting with Kiwi Rail's one single uh, rail tracking machine, which they bought in 1980 or 1981, breaking down. And uh, a whole bunch of other problems with scheduling means that uh, at the very last minute, Kiwi Rail rang up the Greater Wellington Regional Council and said, ah, our machine broke down, we haven't checked the tracks, you're going to have to call off a whole bunch of um, commuter rail services, uh, is that okay? <laughs> and no, it wasn't okay with the Greater Re Wellington Regional Council. Um, that's in Wellington. And then today, there's been a whole bunch of um, cancellations, more mayhem here. This is on top of all the bus cancellations in, in Auckland. What do you make of uh, what's happened with public transport and these services, both for buses and trains, Julianne, in the last um, week or two? I mean, the truth is that previous government's decisions decades ago have put us in the situation we're in right now both with respect to rail and uh, bus contracts and bus drivers. So um, it's a really awkward position for the current government who has tried to prioritize public transport. I don't believe that Labour has actually transferred as much money to the operations of public transport services as they need to, to deliver good services. But, you know, some of what we're facing today is the result of the last number, the previous national government and even the previous labor and national governments. So, um, but we just, it's no excuse. Like people are going to lose confidence in the public transport system and they're not going to be able to use it. So patronage is up in Wellington. It's back to 97% of what it was pre-COVID, which is good, despite all the cancellations and ghost buses. But I really think that we need, the government needs to look hard at the current structure of Kiwi Rail as a vertically integrated standard enterprise, whether that is actually the appropriate vehicle to deliver the improvements that we need to the tracks, because they are very focused on freight. They have to be. And uh, it doesn't really make sense to me to have everything vertically integrated. Most European countries with excellent uh, train services have an organization that owns, maintains, operates, develops the tracks and the network. And then you might have a publicly owned operator for either passenger or freight, but often it's open to other operators as well. And I think that's something we should be looking at very seriously here. That sounds a bit public transport operating model, though. Do, do you really want privately owned um, operators of rail companies, obviously separate from the tracks, um, having lived in Britain and, you know, dealt with Virgin Rail and Thameslink and uh, they're all swear words in my in my. <laughs> My lexicon. So is is that really the best way to do it? Well, and most likely for passenger services, they're not going to be commercial. And so they will be. So yeah, then it makes sense to have a publicly owned operator. But I still think it makes sense to have some separation between the tracks and and the operations because KiwiRail as it is now is operating like a private operator in many respects. And it is focused because of the state-owned enterprise legislation on returning a dividend to the government, which is not the thing that we really need it to do. <laughs> you know, making cash off our freight operations is not is not the thing that gives us the best value out of our transport system. So I'd say it should be a crown entity and um, if and we probably need a separate you know, a separate focus on passenger from freight. Now, the other big news this week was the Reserve Bank doing an analysis of bank profits, which showed New Zealand's banks are the most profitable in the world. We have the most expensive housing market in the world. We've got the best rugby team, the, especially the best women's rugby team. But These are things to be proud of, Bernard. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But we've also got the most profitable banks in the world. Yeehaw. 
And they're not only the most profitable, uh, but also they're the least risky. So when you think about investment, normally you think an investment which returns you lots of money is a bit like that because it's a little bit risky. There's a volatility about their profits up and down, but that's not the case with the banks. They haven't actually made losses for 14 years and their return on equity of around about 13%, even though it's the same as some of the other companies on the NZX, they are also much more volatile and smaller companies. And the Reserve Bank didn't come out and say, um, we're being gouged by the banks. They just said, oh, this is interesting information. We quite like the banks to be much nicer to people and use those high profits to retain their uh, social license. But what did you think, uh, Julianne, of those revelations and what we've seen this week from BNZ and ANZ? We've been calling for an excess profits tax as a tool in the government's toolkit, and it makes more sense than ever right now. The banks did exceedingly well during the COVID period. They never took a hit, and they actually saw increasing um, asset prices. And now, even if house prices are coming down off the boil, their profits are increasing because of higher interest rates, which has nothing to do with what how they operate as a business. It's even Margaret Thatcher brought in an excess profits tax on the banks when interest rates were going up in the 80s in um, Britain. So I think it's really hard to justify our inaction. And I know that the Minister of Finance did ask the government for advice on this. And of course, the classic advice from the public service in New Zealand is like, oh, couldn't possibly do that. Um, I hate the line that we want a profitable banking sector because it means it's stable. Um, There's a difference between profitable and sustainable and the kind of excess profits that we're seeing right now that's just sucking value out of our country. Another way to look at it is to, you know, have a market study of the banking sector. Um, We've had market studies of building materials, groceries, and retail fuel. And Duncan Webb, the Commerce Minister, has said that he is looking potentially at um, having banking and maybe insurance as the next market studies. What do you think? Look, I'm not opposed to a market study, but I mean, we haven't really seen particularly ambitious recommendations come out of those. And I think we need action now. I just, you know, we, we've we actually had some of the international institutions like the IMF and others calling for, or the OECD, calling for the use of excess profit tax with respect to energy. But I think um, given what we know about banks in New Zealand, there's a really good case for it uh, right now in New Zealand. And that would help offset some of the very expensive bills that the government has both Um, paying back borrowing that they used to get us through COVID and now responding to the um, severe weather events that we've had, we've cost us to rebuild. It just makes sense. I, I don't see any advantage in continuing to let the banks just rake it in, you know, and they know, they know they're exposed and frankly, they can't, they're not in a position to do anything about it. I don't think like, I don't believe that trying to make the system more competitive is going to solve the problem at this point. Uh, Julianne Genta, the Green MP and spokesperson for Transport and Infrastructure. Thank you very much for being on The Hoon. Lovely to see you again. Lovely to see you. Cheers. Well, it's time now to zip down to Dunedin with uh, Professor Robert Patman from the University of Otago, our um, our regular rock star guest. Uh, Robert, thank you very much for coming on to the show. Oh, it's a pleasure, Bernard. Hello, Peter. Hi, hi Robert. How are you? I'm, I'm, in Spain. I'm in Spain today. So Wow, you were in Oslo when we last spoke. That's right. Yeah, I'm trying to use more carbon than anybody who's anybody's emitted, <laughs> you know, in their lives, basically, in one trip. Yeah. Well, it's been a big week in the um, the dance between the United States and China and uh, whether New Zealand uh, becomes the grass that gets crushed by the dancing elephants. Uh, and in particular, whether New Zealand joins up to the Pillar 2 version of AUKUS, the uh, Australia, mm. UK, US uh, agreement on defence, not to, to have the nuclear submarines, but to uh, help uh, get hold of the technology, some of the high-tech things that these countries are, are dealing with, and also whether Chris Hipkins um, turns up at NATO and, and gets all friendly with NATO. My understanding is that Nanaya Mahuta went up to China last month and was told in no uncertain terms the Chinese did not want any of that. And uh, there are a few worries around about whether there's fallout from this. Robert, what's your feeling about you know, how, if there is a debate going on within the government and within the cabinet between MFAT 
MPI and uh, all of these players about just how how we do the dance and try not to get squashed by the elephants. Well, I think we've got to protect our the integrity of our foreign policy, which has been relatively successful. And uh, we have been noted by our friends in uh, the Indo-Pacific as being uh, having a principled independent policy and not on occasion being quite prepared to take hard decisions, um, such as pursuing non-nuclear security in the face of opposition from a superpower, the United States, and then uh, condemning an illegal invasion uh, by the United States of, of, Iraq, of Iraq. And well, not so much condemning it, but also n- not endorsing it. And so uh, I think New Zealand is seen uh, in diplomatic terms as not being the same as Australia. And the, the difficulty for, I think, New Zealand here is that it needs to take a step uh, with, in relation to AUKUS that uh, mustn't compromise, I think, or it lead to the suggestion that we are necessarily in lockstep with the United States, the UK and Australia. We have a, a core strategic objective of diversifying our economic links in the Indo-Pacific. And it's no secret that many members of ASEAN and indeed the bulk of the Pacific Island states are lukewarm about AUKUS. Now, let's be quite clear about this. Uh, this is not a question of being soft on China. Good strategy is about the, re- the effective relationship between means and ends. Uh, the question is, does AUKUS actually represent a serious and credible counterbalance to China's growing assertiveness in the Indo-Pacific? And uh, uh, myself and Professor Al Gillespie recently argued that we, we believe on balance uh, that given that New Zealand has a different worldview, we think the advantages of staying detached from AUKUS outweigh the merits of being inside it. So I think there are real risks for New Zealand if it tries to have its cake and eat it. That is, it champions the norm of non-nuclear security, but is part and parcel or seen as a member, an associate member, a Pillar 2 member, to use the jargon, of uh, an organization or a partnership, I should say, which is in the process of transferring nuclear technology from the United States and the UK to Australia, which is currently non-nuclear. So I know this is to construct nuclear-powered, not nuclear-armed submarines, but I think perceptions matter in international politics. And uh, it, it, it seems to me that we have to be careful because yeah, there's another issue here, and I'd be interested to hear your views on this, both of you. You know, we don't know what's going to happen in the United States in the 2024 election. Yeah. Do, there, is a, there is a risk here, as Paul Keating pointed out, that if New Zealand joined uh, AUKUS as a non-nuclear member, we could find ourselves as an associate member of a security partnership headed by Mr. Trump or Mr. DeSantos neither of whom have much regard for the very thing that AUKUS was set up to defend, which is the international rules-based order. Uh, Of course, we don't want to just defend it. We want to actually strengthen it. And that's where New Zealand is separate from the three members of AUKUS. We actually want to see reform of the Security Council, like President Zelensky. So, yeah. Yeah, that's one of the issues is, is that um, we jump on the horse and then the horse suddenly becomes some sort of <laughs> rabid lion. Uh, and I, I'm curious too about, you know, um, we're obviously trying to diversify our trade. Chris Hipkins has just signed overnight um, a slightly faster free trade agreement with the United Kingdom, with Rishi Sunak. No doubt all the friendly talk about AUKUS has helped there. And uh, he's been talking a bit more with the Europeans and with NATO and there's He's going to go, it seems, to the big NATO conference in July and potentially could uh, be invited to this shindig going on in Sydney in a couple of weeks' time where Joe Biden comes to Sydney and meets up with the heads of the so-called Quad, which is like AUKUS, but with India added. Um, Mm. And uh, I, I wonder how far Chris Hipkins and the government should go in cozying up to NATO as well. And, you know, zipping over to Sydney and uh, standing around the sidelines there. 
Well, Bernard, I think on balance, New Zealand should steer clear of AUKUS, but it's quite consistent with New Zealand's worldview, which is a belief in multilateral security, to have a close relationship with NATO. And so I think there's a real risk for New Zealand joining AUKUS. I think it would seriously dent extort the, if you like, the international perceptions of our in, independent non-nuclear security stance. Uh, I think there's, on balance, given the fact that we've always argued for a multilateral approach to security, there's comparatively little risk in developing our relationship with NATO. And, um, you know, uh, China doesn't like AUKUS and it doesn't like NATO, but uh, you know, I think successive prime ministers have made it clear that while we're happy to do business with China, uh, China can't treat us in a sort of master-servant relationship. We can't be backtracking on our core values. And look, we, we're increasingly located in the interdependent world by small, where small and middle powers have more weight than previously. It's not because great powers lack power. It's just that many of the problems confronting us now can't be solved unilaterally by anyone. So uh, that gives some agency to small and middle powers. And I think New Zealand has a distinctive worldview, which is based on strengthening the international rule of law, not on just defending it or upholding the status quo, which the UK and the United States are very fond of because they, uh, they are privileged members of the Security Council and they can block anything they don't like by exercising the veto, as can, of course, France. Uh, China and Russia. So we want to go beyond that. We actually want to see the Security Council, I think, more functional and more responsive than it currently is. Do, do you get the sense, Robert, that this is a priority for the New Zealand government? You know, I, I think we felt perhaps that with Jacinda Ardern, there was a real priority. Uh, you know, as, as you said, you know, Nanaya Mahuta went to China, got this message, but we, we seldom hear publicly from Nanaya Mahuta. And so it's quite difficult to tell sometimes whether we have a strong or weak foreign policy. I have a feeling that Nanai Mahuta gave an interesting interview, I think about six days ago, with Simon Shepherd, And I think she was much more cautious in her statements on AUKUS than some of her colleagues. Although, to be fair, both Andrew Little and the Prime Minister, Chris Hipkins, have said they had no problem exploring discussions about Pillar 2 membership, which is quite different from saying that they're negotiating to join. Um, mm. I do think we face a momentous decision over what seems to be quite concerted pressure from the UK, the United States and Australia over this AUKUS question. And China's pushing back too, um, my yeah. understanding uh, without anything uh, public that I can refer to, is that uh, Nanaya Mahuta got a dressing down in China when she went there. Yeah, again, I, I think the bottom line question, though, here is, do we support an enhanced security arrangement between three English-speaking countries to try to counter Chinese influence? Is that the best mechanism for doing so? Many countries in the Indo-Pacific are extremely sceptical that Britain, uh, the United States, and Australia can, and uh, people like Paul Keating echo this, um, is the best vehicle for doing so. You know, countries which are very critical of AUKUS have no illusions about Chinese assertiveness, countries like Indonesia and Malaysia and Vietnam. Um, but they don't see AUKUS as the mechanism, nor do some of our allies in NATO, like France and Germany. Just finally, Robert, on Ukraine, um, what did you make of this apparent drone attack and uh, where we are in the war, which looks like it's about to kick off again? Well, I think my take on what's happened is no better than anyone else's because it's an extraordinary episode. I personally think that Mr. Putin, of course, with his intelligence background, he's had a track record of having false flag operations. Um, you had someone on your program, I think, last year, Bernard, who Peter was responsible for bringing on the program, who's a Russian a specialist, a journalist. I've, his name escapes mm. me for the moment. Yeah, that was David Satter, yeah. And he was making the point that he had little doubt that Mr. Putin used a false flag operation when he became prime minister and he had a, about 2% standing in the Russian polls. And the polls then meant much more than they do now. 
And of course, unfortunately, 300 people were blown up in flats in round Moscow. So we can't rule out the possibility that Mr. Putin has, you know, created some sort of episode. What is, I think, clear, what, to respond to your question as precisely as I can, I think whoever launched that drone did so within Moscow. Yes. Whether it yes, be a that's... partisan group or whether it be the FSB. And I suppose you, you saw the video clips. There were two people handily placed on the roof when the drone was intercepted. And the drone did not seem to be hitting the Kremlin. It missed its target before it exploded. So the there's, footage um, of it being hit did look a little bit too good to be true. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's very difficult to say. I think the Russian, the Russian government has really been unnerved by a whole series of explosions this week in Russia, which have not got massive media coverage, but they're certainly getting some coverage on Twitter from people deeply interested in the Ukraine conflict. With any luck, Robert, he'll be going to going to South Africa and getting arrested uh, because of his ICC thing, but I'm afraid not, it would appear. No, I, would, I wouldn't uh, bank on that. No. no. Um, uh, we'll keep an eye on this. Uh, Robert, thank you very much for coming on the show. Great to, great to see you. Thanks, Robert. You. Talk to you soon. Thank lovely. you. Now, I'd like to welcome onto the Hoon David Hall, who is uh, the Climate Policy Director at Tohu and a uh, long-time thinker and academic on the political economy of climate change. Uh, David, welcome on to the Hoon. Kia ora, Bernard. And um, it's just Toha. Toha. Sorry. Yeah, no problem. Tell us what Toha is for a start. Yeah, Toha is developing an impact investment uh, marketplace, so matching supply and demand for environmental impact with a particular focus on regenerative agriculture and land use. And I've been doing a lot of work recently on preparing the ground for biodiversity and um, and especially what we call nature-based solutions where you restore forests or wetlands and so on and you get the benefits of mm-hmm. both biodiversity but also climate adaptation because those sorts of um, Land uses increase the resilience of, of catchments and landscapes. And you also get a little bit of carbon sequestration come along for the ride too. Can you give us an example of how this might work, how a farmer or an iwi would do some things that um, you know reduce our emissions or sequester some carbon that some other uh, group or player uh, invests in that project to you know come up with a, with a better net result? Sure. I mean, front of mind at the moment is obviously um, the East Coast and, uh, you know, the events after Cyclone Gabriel. And, um, you know, that's really revealed and exposed um, how vulnerable those landscapes are and and the um, you know, absence of forest, which used to be there, is a contributing factor. And so are the drainage of, of wetlands for um, pastoral agriculture. And so, you know, restoring um, permanent potentially unharvested or selectively harvested forest um, back into the upper catchments, creating wetlands in the, in the lower catchments to help with um, water regulation and so on. You know, it, it can't necessarily stop um, flooding events from, you know, cyclones like we've seen, but it can at least reduce the flows, slow them down, um, reduce some of those risks. And then when you think through those risks, they have material implications for all sorts of entities there's asset owners downstream uh, there's banks that have mortgages and in, in farms there's insurance insurance on farm and so on and they're all also exposed in various ways to events like this and they are currently um, gathering more knowledge about that exposure through the climate risk disclosure process where the um, you know 200 largest Institutions in New Zealand now have mandatory um, requirements to understand their climate-related risks. And so, you know, that creates a, let's call it enlightened self-interest to um, restore these uh, catchments and to reduce those um, risks where possible. And the the challenge for us at Toha is to, um, you know, come up with impact verification products so that uh, investors know what they're getting when they're investing money, they know that they've, you know, made a land use change. That there's, there's wetland where there didn't used to be wetland. There's forest where there didn't used to be forest, and that enables those transactions so that um, some of those players can start to reduce the risks in their value chains by 
investing in nature-based solutions. D- David, it's Peter here. How, how, how important do you think these questions are uh, or, or this idea of sort of making it economically active, making it economically valuable to getting public acceptance of this? Because w- one of the interesting things that I, that's, that's happening in Europe is, is a really strong uh, rise, particularly by farming groups and politically active farming groups against some of the uh, net zero provisions. Um, mm. do, do, do you think that this economic aspect of, of giving them a, a greater incentive without necessarily subsidies, but just showing the economic potential economic benefit of this is part of the persuasion tactics? Absolutely. I mean, I mean the agricultural community is diverse and there's some who, um, you know, don't need persuasion. They can, uh, many farmers and landowners completely understand their exposure to these sorts of events and, and don't need um, huge amount of persuasion. However, they're time limited. They can be um, have constrained cash flow, and so things like a payment system can help mm-hmm. as an enabler for them to do more and for them to um, you know fulfil their aspirations around land stewardship. Because many farmers would love to do more than they than they currently can, and so um, you know payment mechanisms for biodiversity or for adaptation um, can help with that and you know indeed there is a trend tradition of that um, after cyclone bola there was the east coast forestry program mm-hmm. which evolved into the erosion control funding program so these sorts of funding programs and payment programs do exist yeah and and then they can serve as an incentive for those who don't have those motivations already, yeah. and so is it, there a connection then, to carbon? Is there a connection to carbon credits, David? I mean, where we where we fear that this, you know, the, the 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 market isn't quite functioning yet, as far as both international carbon credits go, but also domestic. Yeah, I think of these as as complementary instruments. I think in the from the ideal of a public policy economist, you'd probably want to have um, distinct instruments which are. Overlapping, but addressing these different issues and driving progress towards those different objectives. So you would have a an instrument in relation to carbon, as we currently mm-hmm. do through the emissions trading scheme. But alongside that, you might have something that does a similar role for biodiversity, perhaps adaptation as well. And um, you know, landowners could potentially access different revenue streams and then those revenue streams could add together so something like a native forest might be able to access a biodiversity payment on top of the carbon payment and that would help with the opportunity cost that currently exists because native forest grows slower and so Mm. especially in the first couple of decades and so the returns aren't as great uh, through carbon revenue as they are for faster growing exotics so if there was a biodiversity payment there, um, it would would potentially reduce mm. that opportunity cost and make native forest a more viable um, mm. land use option. So a sort of a um, um, buy the burger and and would you like fries with that uh, sort of sort of deal? I'm curious, David. The idea of a market solving a problem and dealing with this you know fundamental issue of externalities, i.e. You know, the costs that are borne in the future by someone else because of an economic activity where the benefits are privatised by the owner of the land in particular or the forest. And this, this seems like a really interesting idea, but the problem, of course, is it's all about market design and, and how well you structure things so that there are a whole bunch of free riders and exemptions and things. And I see that uh, today there's a report that the carbon price has dropped, <laughs> dropped to fifty three dollars, uh, and over the last two or three months we've we've heard that the government chose uh, slightly lower petrol prices over a tougher emissions trading scheme, which seems to have blown up confidence in the entire scheme at least. Uh, what do you think of the politics at the moment of the emissions trading scheme going into an election, and whether it actually is? you know, worth trying to save. The politics are obviously incredibly fraught for an economic instrument coming up to an election where taxation and spending are, you know, firebrand issues, essentially. Um, You know, the Labour Party doesn't want to leave itself vulnerable to those sorts of attacks. And if they are contemplating things like a capital gains tax, then they probably want to save their political capital to spend on on something like that rather than um you know new or increased taxes for things like emissions and so 
you know, these pricing instruments always have to walk a really difficult line. They have to, um, it's a little bit of a Goldilocks problem. They need to be, you know, just high enough that um, they're driving some behavior change, but not so high that they're creating um, a major political backlash that politicians are unwilling to deal with. And I think, you know, that's the explanation for why Cabinet didn't accept the Climate Change Commission's advice um, because, you know, they had recommended setting the uh, cost containment reserve trigger very high. And I think there was uncertainty about how that would play out um, in market behavior. And I, you know, I, th- I think Cabinet, given that uncertainty, um, would be reluctant to sign off on anything that potentially induced the price to skyrocket rocket upwards when inflation is high. So in some regards, it's no surprise really that they um, declined the commission's advice. And I think, you know, perhaps we need to think more around um, stability and certainty because, you know, to your point, should we have the ETS? I mean, the ETS is driving behavior change amongst uh, businesses and industry. You know, I've worked with companies and they are making those cost-benefit analyses using the emissions trading scheme price, and they are starting to make those investments. Wouldn't you feel a bright mug, though, if you'd assumed 100 bucks or 150 bucks, and then you looked at the price today and saw 53 and thought, oh, what a waste? I would assume that this is volatility, though. I mean, I, I think it'll have to creep up, and, you know, obviously the commission and, well, indeed government is looking at ways to... Um, to improve the ETS, especially around um, the inclusion of forestry and the role that it's playing in regards to, um, you know, creating another supply of units and an uncontrolled supply of units presently. So um, I think in the in the long term assumption, you know, there's the the government really needs the ETS um, price to move up. I just wonder whether, in the way that they control that price corridor, they might need to uh, favour mechanisms which have some certainty around them like the uh, fixed price option that they used to use you know there's it it, it creates a lot of a lot of certainty um rather than this kind of up and down which makes it really hard for decision makers to david who who else is is thinking about your organization who else in the banking sector perhaps is doing this i mean are you seeing um the big the, the big new zealand banks which bernard talked about at the top of the hour being being the most profitable in the world. Are they moving into the sector or is it being left to startups and essentially like like Tohu? Toha, yes. Toha, sorry, forgive me. They um definitely no no problem. They they definitely are moving into this space. And um I was involved um a couple of years ago um when the with the Sustainable Finance Forum, which was um convened by the Aotearoa Circle. And so that was a a working group really with um with the major banks uh insurers and other financial sector actors and um you know one of the outcomes of that was to create a roadmap and another outcome was to create um Toitu Tahua the center for sustainable finance as a as a home and a, and a champion for movement in this space so there there is progress uh being made and as i said they're preparing their climate risk disclosures uh presently some of um the major banks have already gone down that path and that's something that hopefully we'll see greater granularity and um sophistication evolving through that process year on year but you know all the, the, these are large institutions and they've got lots of different incentives and you know these organizations will have a sustainability office which is heading in one direction but then there's the core business which may well be heading in other directions and um you know you you wouldn't assume that there's one single voice or one single motivation in any of these institutions and that's part of the challenge for transitions um generally is is how to how the new can be (laughs) become the incumbent and um you know these these new ways of looking at things are emerging in all these different institutions and gathering momentum but it'll take time i can't help feeling though that the climate now is moving faster than the politics um the reports we're hearing about record low ice levels in the antarctic um, record high 
uh, temperatures in the Pacific atmospheric rivers we're in right now as we speak in, in Auckland. I've got a feeling that now the rubber hits the road or we get run over. And um, it's, uh, it's, it's great to see you doing that work at Toha. Thank you very much. Um, David Hall from, Thanks, from Toha. Thanks, Peter. Cheers. Now, f- from the climate to the technology, we've got Ben Reid joining us. Um, uh, ben, I'm a huge admirer of uh, Ben's Substack Memia which from New Zealand looks around the world at the big changes in technology and tries to think about what they mean for us here and how things are changing. Welcome into the Hoon, Ben. Fantastic. Uh, Kira, Kira, Peter, Um, I'm a regular viewer, so... Nice to be on the other side of the uh, of, of the camera for once. Yeah, yeah, you've you've jumped the species barrier. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, ben, ben, there's some big things happening in AI. It feels like it's the moment for AI, yeah. and it seems more substantial than you know crypto's moment or, or um, the Web three moment or whatever it is. There's some really big stuff going on. Um, just in the last month or so, we've seen all sorts of. Um, tech uh, luminaries get together and say, oh, we're scared. This is moving too fast for us even. Uh, we like to move things fast and break things, but we're a little bit worried that the AI is going to move too fast and break us. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. what, what do you think of these various calls to you know, suspend some of the development of AI? And is it, is it really that much of a worry? Um, yeah, well, unbundle that question. So, I mean, to your point um, just now, David, uh, about you know, climate change accelerating um and i think i spent a lot of you know the last few years thinking that you know the the, the biggest thing on the horizon was the climate and then suddenly just in the last six months um not even six months it's like sort of four or five months you know the the advances in generative ai which have always been happening you know in the background and i mean i've been involved in the space for, for years but it, it's it's just suddenly hit the mainstream so open ai's chat gpt has opened everybody's eyes and, and it's more of just the rapid not just the pace of technological advancement but the the pace of uh, adoption and absorption by people so you know chat gpt went to 100 million users mm. in about two two months and that's the fastest growing technology app um, in history by by a, a long chalk um and so you know you you've actually the, the awareness of this has you know built out as people have just tried it and seen it seen it working and, and it is you know quite spectacular now to have you know, free or twenty buck a month access um, to uh, you know GPT four model and and a whole bunch of AI tools that are growing around that. So to your point about AI safety, I mean, there's um, you know the, the question uh, is, is sort of many faceted and many timelines. So you know on on horizon one right now, you know we have have questions around uh, you know AI in terms of automation of of jobs. I mean, you know our game, right? So our yeah, I mean, I'm using it all the time for summarization and for, um, you know, sort of playing around with words and, and so on. And so, you know, how long until most of journalism, you know, is, is automated? And I saw a colleague, a New Zealand colleague, I can't remember who, saying that they'd done some experiments, you know, with it. And, you know, it's made us all very productive, but it's never going to put, it out, put us out of a job. I wouldn't make that statement myself. I'm quite, in some ways quite looking forward to being put out of a job. Um, but, you know, the, 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 so the productivity dividend is going to be massive in the short term it's going to make us all individually in information work you know massively more productive do you think though it's going to be good for us and you know um john maynard kane said back in the 20s with all this technology change it's going to be brilliant you know the machines will do the work and we'll just work for 20 or 30 hours a week and we'll be rich and it'll be great but uh didn't quite work out like that yeah i mean there's the question of you know who's actually um you know, moving the hamster wheel, powering the hamster wheel that, that we all run on. Um, and hamsters. Yeah, hamsters. <laughs> and it actually looks, you know, in some ways, it's, it's this global capitalist system that we that we run to. And, you know, we've got this sort of money imagination creation machine that, you know, mm. creates this debt that we've all got to then run really hard to pay off. And so, you know, arguably, this is just the, the next generation of, you know, the logical consequence um, uh, written technology from that. Yeah, it's interesting, Ben, that you should mention journalism, and because that's you know that's obviously the area I'm in, and I've been writing quite yeah. a bit for a thing called the International News Media Association about AI, and it's very clear to me, having having been just a couple of weeks ago to a conference in Italy about this area, that um, there are immense numbers of back office type tasks, for example, yeah. search engine optimization, that are going to be so much easier, so much faster, so much accurate. accurate. Also, things like consolidating peer-reviewed studies and so on, 
there is still a, a high accuracy problem with actually publishing straight out from from ChatGPT. I mean, even I think it's five and five out of fifteen um, attribution links to the sources, uh, on average, are incorrect at the moment. Oh, look, at this, I mean, that is the you know the challenge with this first generation generation of technology as it's gone into the wild is that. Mm. It, it does hallucinate, right? So, you know, understanding how it works under the scene, under the covers, it's sort of basically a big prediction engine and it will create a phrase with incredible confidence, mm. uh, but it's completely fictional. So it's not a a, a search engine as such, um, but it is being combined. So Microsoft um, and Google are both integrating this chat technology with, um, with their search engines. Um, and so, you know, it varies. You're seeing already sort of hybrid options where you can reference the, the facts yeah yeah in, in a sense this ex- this experiment is going on in real time yes. in front of all of us and it's actually just it's so disruptive for example to google i mean one of the reasons i think um, google's prime one of google's primary ai i think as jeffrey hinton resigned was mm. was because he's nervous about the speed at which google is moving because it sees a, a competitive threat to its core business model of search yes and that and that it's therefore taking away some of the guardrails yeah, and the, there's the question about guardrails. So, you know, Hinton is sort of known as the, the godfather of AI. I mean, he was a mm. British academic and basically moved to Toronto and sort of built up a leading sort of, um, he's, he's the inventor of the backpropagation algorithm, which is basically what you know, a lot of the neural networks today are still based on. And so him and uh, Joshua Bengio and Jan LeCun, Jan LeCun heads up Meta AI. You mm-hmm. know, um, the three of them were awarded the sort of 28. Uh, 2018 Turing Award, which is like the, I guess, yeah. the Nobel Prize for for, um, ten, for technology. Mm. Um, but yeah, so he resigned this week. I mean, at the age of 75, um, and so you know, re- re- retirement was. I mean, he actually mentioned Slacker. You know, it's, yeah, t- time to retire maybe. Um, but uh, went out with a bang and, and did mention about AI safety. So I'd say his his concerns about AI safety are more in that horizon too. Mm. Um, but uh, it is about being pushed, where, isn't it? The speed is being driven hugely by commercial con- commercial concerns. Yes, com- buying, commercial combat. Well, yeah. well, Microsoft sees an opportunity. Also, military technology. So you know, a lot of signals intelligence now, you know, is is using uh, using these models to you know interpret and provide much more accelerated intelligence in the field. Mm. Um, and so you know, this 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 the capitalism may be driving it right now, and and you know, competition. But it's always been. You know, driven by military technology. I mean, I'd love to see someone calling for a six-month moratorium. We'll just have a six-month pause on military investment. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and no one's doing that. Um, but, but so, it, 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 you know, for those, Hinton's um, concern is that, uh, you know, when this falls in, any technology can be used for good or for bad. Mm. Um, but if it falls into, uh, you know, the hands of a Putin or uh, or a, a Kim Jong Il, then you know, what potentially could they use it for? And I think there's this you know, quite realistic concerns that military use of this technology does lead to, for example, yeah. just the generative AI combined with biology designs a, you know, hyper-infectious virus that mm. makes COVID look more, like more a, than More than a, just a Pope problem. wearing a Balenciaga puffer jacket. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, ben, and, what, you know, yeah. From a national point of view, if you look at New Zealand, because I, I, this is something I, I, I looked at when I was helping stuff with something. Um, does New Zealand need to consider creating a large language model in mm. and about New Zealand? I mean, do we need an equivalent of the Icelandic DNA uh, yeah. genetic map for New Zealand? So I would err on that side. I, I think um, what we're witnessing at the moment is the concentration of power of these technologies mm. into you know, United States big tech and Chinese big tech. Um, and you know, not a lot of uh, diffusion beyond that. The flip side to that story is you know, the escape of Meta's Llama mm. model, which is like a GPT-4, probably not quite as, as effective, but not far off it, um, which escaped into the wild um, in March. Uh, you know, they, escaped they, into the wild? What they, does that they mean? Basically published it, they published it under an academic use license, mm-hmm. and then someone basically put it out onto torrent, BitTorrent, and so yeah. anyone could get it. And so, and I think, you know, Jan LeCun, who is another, as I say, was a um, another recipient of the Turing Award, he thinks that actually open sourcing this technology is the way that you create a more even Darwinian equilibrium mm-hmm. of, you know, the, the measure and the countermeasure as it goes forward. Can, can you imagine creating, though, and I, I think maybe we should find out somebody to create it, a, a large language model about uh, Aotearoa, which included Toreo, 
the 150 yes. years of New Zealand media, the Alexander Turnbull Library. Uh, you know, really, it's, it's a way of just turning on the spigot now. Yeah, absolutely. The, and, and this comes more to the point of, of you know, national sovereignty. In mm. that, you know, we, we have really ceded, you know, quietly, you know, quite large parts of our national sovereignty in terms of most of government, most of our industry now runs on big US tech cloud data mm. centers, you know, hosted offshore. And, and you know, while that's not a, a bad thing, it does, you know, create a single point of failure if uh, geopolitically, you know, something were to happen. So, yeah, I, I think that, you know, we've, we've lost capability to build the full stack of technology. And I think, you know, that basically building up that capability onshore. All right. The Hoon will advocate for a, a national New Zealand LLM, Aotearoa LLM. Uh, possibly even based on the Kaka stack. Yeah, you'll be Kaka stack, and you'll be able to run it on your iPhone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, or your or your open source Android. Yeah, yeah. Oh, the Kaka stack. <laughs> I've got that. Uh, the Kaka stack on Substack. Um, thank you very much, Ben, for uh, being on the being on the show. Thanks, Ben. It's really interesting. Please, please come back again sometime soon. It's great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and uh, there's no doubt going to be plenty more really fascinating implications of AI. And uh, if I had young children now, I'd be, you know, pointing them in that, that direction and saying, tell me what this means about anything yeah. else, but get ready for a job or whatever it is that it changes the, your world is going to change your world. Yeah, uh, well, as usual, the, the advice is usually just become a hairdresser. <laughs> ah, the, the, yeah. Try, try and find a plumber or an electrician, right? So Exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. No, that's, that's <laughs> a good point. But it, it does – sometimes I have to shake my head and think, when I first was a journalist, I trained with a typewriter and some carbon paper. And, Peter, when you worked as a journalist, you were giving carbons to sub-editors yep. to take downstairs to – to a printer yep. to put bits of lead and trains. Well, and right? unfortunately, men of mine went, went directly onto a spike, in the, which was literally a sort of <laughs> sword in the middle of the subs table. Well, uh, just moving forward, so just this week I had a story in, in my newsletter that there's you know, new research now that's able to basically decode the, lang the language centers of your brain with reasonably high accuracy and understand the gist of what you're thinking. Jesus, I'm, I, I hope that doesn't happen to mine, and, and certainly it can't be published because <laughs> mine is all over the place. If if my thinking escapes into the wild, I'm in deep trouble. <laughs> your yeah, your yeah. thinking escapes into the wild pretty much twice daily, Bernard, it's, true. it's great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can't be stopped. Hey, uh, Ben, lovely to see Fantastic. you. Thank Thanks you very much. Um, huge fan again, and I recommend uh, Mimia as a substack to read. Um, that's lovely. Peter, I um, really good to have you on this week, all the way from Spain. A skateboarding dog, what have you got for us? Well, my skateboarding dog is actually from Australia, and it's partly because, as you know, I think, Bernard, I've got a slight obsession with that New Zealand app that's been created, which tracks great white sharks uh, that, oh, are, yeah. that are uh, living down in Bowen Town near Waihi. And they've got names like Daisy and Mary Bell and, you know, Bruce. And they're uh, swimming around and they go up and down the coast, uh, right up to Great Barrier, around into, into the Waitamata and sort of hang off outside Waihi. So I, I don't go in the water now unless I look at that, look at that app. I mean, I don't, I don't have to look at it so much in Spain because I, I presume they're not quite getting over here. But there was Maybe a fabulous, you. Yeah, f fabulous classic Australian story this week of a fisherman being found inside a crocodile uh, about six days after he went missing. And it looks like that he was he was eaten by a 4.1 meter crocodile and a, and its 2.8 meter uh, colleague, and it looks like he was dragged into the sea into the into the into the water and eaten, and the police said, "quote It could have happened for sure. There was a noise, a loud yell, and the sound of water splashing. <laughs> that was it. So that's how it goes. Yeah, yeah. So I, yeah, I well, love those Australian. Those, I love those Australian stories. But as I say, as somebody who tracks tracks great whites." Um, off uh, the Bay of Plenty, it makes me nervous. Daisy is coming to get you. Yeah, exactly. I don't want to know. If Daisy takes a bite out of me, I want her to take the whole lot straight away. <laughs> In a gulp. In yeah. a gulp. Uh, yeah, no, Daisy. And Bruce. Um, I don't think there is actually one called Bruce. I'll take a look at Bruce. I, well, for those who um, have watched Finding Nemo a hundred times, because that was when the oh, yeah. kids came out, uh, Bruce, fish. <laughs> Fish are friends. Uh, one of the great um, characters in, in animation, oh, Barry yeah. Humphreys. That was Barry Humphreys. Was, was, was Bruce a great white? 
Yeah, um, yes, he but was, he was one of those yeah. great whites who who became a vegetarian show. Uh, it was a, a great moment in animation. Peter, lovely to see you. I hope you um, have a lovely safe trip too, back. Is that right? You're well, on your no, way no, back. No. I'll, the... be, I'll, be, I'll be doing the hoon from here again next week. Ah. Yeah, or we could do it from Tangier on, um, earlier in the week if you wanted to, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday next week, not to tell the entire world exactly where I'm going. But uh, I'll, I'll be back. Yeah. Here. I'll be, be in this location um, in next Friday. Fantastic. Kakita ano, everyone. This has been The Hoon. I've been Bernard Hickey, and uh, we've been with Peter Bale on The Hoon for Friday, May the 5th. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.